Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue our worship this morning through the study of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus together. And we're hitting a part now where uh, it's very familiar to us. The temptation as we get to familiar passages of Scripture is just to hear them how we've always read them, how we've always heard them. And what happens is we we begin to, like the game of telephone, make the scripture say something that it doesn't say and that it was never intended to say. So we want to study this in context. After this passage, we're going to hit parts of Exodus that you've probably never read before because we really only read to this part. This is all, really all that we remember or that we've seen in movies. And so we're going to have some exploration to come from there. But this morning, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments that God gives in Exodus chapter 20. So I'm sure you've seen movies and flannel graphs about it. And we're going to read all of this in context. On the screen right now are a number of scriptures that I'm going to use this morning. It is a lot. So buckle up. Uh, We're going to get through it. The Ten Commandments and the story of the Israelites and their freedom from slavery in, in Egypt is a central event that happens in scripture. And this event is referenced repeatedly throughout scripture. So I want to make sure we put all of this in context Um, this morning. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, let's pray that God would open our hearts and minds to his word. God, we love you. Thank you for this gift. Um, We've talked a lot this morning with you. We've prayed a lot with you this morning and what a gift it is to be able just to open our mouths and speak to you. God, I pray that through your word today that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand more about who you are. And through understanding who you are, that we would know who we are and how we are to live in such a time as this. So God, open our hearts and our minds to it, God. Uh, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's put this in context a bit. People of Israel had been set free from slavery in Egypt. It's been about three months. Uh, Miraculous things have happened. They've walked through the Red Sea. God's provided bread from heaven, water from um, uh, kind of dirty water. And then he's provided um, water also from a rock. Miraculous things have happened. They faced a war already. It's three months in. And now they're at the edge of what's called Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And from this point forward, everything else in the the book of Exodus will happen right here at this very location. So this is kind of where we are. It comes to a screeching halt. Last week, we saw that God has spoken to his people from the mountain. And he's invited them into relationship with him. And it looks scary and intimidating, and they don't feel worthy. And yet, this holy set-apart God has invited them into relationship with him. But they stand at a distance rather than approaching him. And so at this moment, then, God is now going to give them these 10 commandments. But let's put all this in context so we understand this is a real story with real people in a real place with real feelings and real emotions. Sometimes we read the Bible like you read a fairy tale and you forget these are people just like you and like me who have experienced similar things and have experienced similar emotions that you and I have. So let's put ourselves in their shoes. They're back in Egypt for generation after generation, they're in Egypt under the reign of oppressive kings, and the kings of Egypt are called pharaohs, under oppressive pharaohs. And so what's happened is throughout the course of time, like you and like me, they've built up their own paradigm, their own moral uh, idea of what life is supposed to be like. And they've probably thought things like, oh, when I get free, I'm never going to treat people like Pharaoh treats me. 
Anybody ever worked for a boss when you're like, man, when I get a new job, I'm never going to, or if I'm ever in charge of people, I will never do. That ever happened to some of you? And maybe it's more relatable in this way. You grew up in a house with parents and you said to yourself, I'll never say that to my kids. And then you had kids and you said it the exact same way your dad said it to you. Has that happened for you? So they're here in Egypt and they've built in their mind their own moral paradigm. And here's what we do in situations like that. We build a paradigm uh, more based on what we don't want to be as opposed to what we do want to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? Most of our paradigms are built on, I don't want to be like Pharaoh or I don't want to be like my dad or I don't want to be like my mom or I don't want to be like that boss. So they've built this idea up. And so now God is going to speak to them. He's going to remind them it's not enough to just not be like Pharaoh. I want you to be who I've called you to be. And so he gives them this, these 10 commandments. And these 10 commandments are just the beginning of what's called the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law or moral laws, just the beginning of it. These 10 commandments quickly turn into 613 commandments. So there's that. We don't have time for that. But there's 613 of them. We're gonna cover 10. This is the introduction and it's really kind of the table of contents of the law. The other 603 laws really fit into these 10 commandments. And there are more than 613. These are the ones that God has chosen to put here in the scripture. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna read through and talk about each of the 10 commandments. And then I wanna put this in the context of the whole of scripture. Because what's dangerous is that if we read this out of context, we make it something that it's not meant to be. So Exodus chapter 20, verse one. And God spoke these, all these words saying, so if you're paying attention, Moses is at the bottom of Mount Sinai. In our minds, he's at the top, isn't he? Like in your mind, isn't that what you picture? You picture him in the smoke and being given the 10 commandments. At this moment of the 10 commandments, he's still at the bottom and God is speaking in such a way that everyone hears what he's saying. Verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he goes into the commandments, he reminds them that he has the authority to give them commandments because he set them free. And then he gives the first command in verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So, so far, I skipped verse three, but verse three is saying that um, you are to have no other gods before him. Now, this word before is interesting. We read it as um, before in order of priority. So in our minds, and we don't mean to, but our minds go to, well, then he has to be the first God. And then I can have smaller gods under that. So we begin to write priority lists we're like, well, I'm going to worship God on Sundays. Then on Monday, it's work. Tuesday, it's my family or whatever. This word before means in, in, in the face of or in the presence of. God is saying, you can have no other gods in my presence. And we also know about God is that God is everywhere. So wherever God is, there cannot be other gods. So what God is saying is you can't have any other gods. So he begins with that. And you can picture the Israelites and Moses saying, yeah, yeah. That's what the Egyptians used to do. We always said we would never do that. So we got that one. And then he says, also no carved images. Don't make any idols. And like, yeah, that's what the Egyptians used to do also. Pharaoh had this serpent thing on his head. We'll never do that. And then he continues to give the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now we read that 
And we think because grandma told us we can't say certain things in grandma's house. That's what we think when we read, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But it's bigger than that. The idea here in Hebrew is that you cannot carry his name in vain or carry the banner, the name of Jesus in vain. What that means is if you're going to name yourself in our culture, if you're going to name yourself as a Christian, you can't call yourself a Christian and then behave as if you're not a Christian. That's taking the name of the Lord God in vain. You cannot say you're a Christian businessman just to get business because people in the South love them, a trustworthy Christian businessman. And so you put the Jesus fish on your cards and you pass it out as if you're a Christian businessman, only behind the scenes, you're taking people's money, you're not fulfilling the orders, you're not doing work. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It means to wear a Christian bracelet while you're playing football and then to cuss out the referee. That is taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord says, I will not stand for it. I won't hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. Then verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who was within your gates. He goes into detail because what's tempting is for the elite to say, I'm gonna take a day off. I'm gonna make my servants work instead. And God says, that's not what I mean. What I mean is everyone sets the Sabbath apart as holy. Verse 11, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in him and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We learn later that God gives these commandments to Moses on two stone tablets. And commandments one through four are on tablet number one. And if you're paying attention, all of these commandments, these first four commandments are what we would call vertical commandments. They have to do with our relationship with God. And then from there, he shifts to commandments five through 10. And if, if you want to take a guess, they are horizontal commandments. And they begin like this in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Do I need to say it again, parents? Do I need to repeat this one? Yes, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He quickly shifts from vertical to horizontal and begins with the authority in the home. Then verse 13, you shall not murder. Now in the Hebrew, it's two words. Don't murder. That's what it says. Or no murder. So they're listening to this. I want you to think about Moses. Moses is hearing the commands and he's like, command one, good. Command two, got it. Three, sure. Four, okay, I'm good with that. Uh, five, mother and father. Yeah, I think I've done that. And then God says, and don't kill people. And Moses, who is a murderer, is standing before a holy God giving his commandments. And he says, and don't kill people. What do you think goes through Moses' mind at this point? At this moment, what was a good idea for other people has now become personal for him. What was a good idea for a culture or a community or a new group of people? What seemed easy to do because other people were doing that and he knew that was wrong now gets convicted with you have broken them already. Then he continues, you shall not commit adultery, sex outside of marriage. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
So in these two tablets, you've been given the first one that's all about God and relationship with God. And the second group, the second tablet, commands uh, five through 10, are all about your relationship with other people. So these are the 10 commandments. Man, in America, we love them, don't we? Gosh, we love the 10 commandments. We want them everywhere. Like I want them cross-stitched in my house. I want them on, in court buildings. I want them in schools. I want them on bumper stickers. I want them on billboards. Man, we love the 10 commandments. The truth is, as Americans, we love laws. And I know you're like, ah, I don't, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. We, you talk about them all the time. We talk, we talk about laws incessantly. We talk about laws. We talk about the ones that we like. We talk about the ones that we don't like. We talk about the ones, well, if I was president, well, you're not going to be president. So it doesn't really matter what you think is going to happen. We love them. And I have some idea as to why we love them. I think we love when things are black and white. I think we love when we know a clear right and a clear wrong. We love them. What we love most is when the, the law says what is right is also what I agree is right. We like that the most. And what the law says is wrong, if I agree that it's wrong, I also really like that law and I want that one. We love to know what's right and what's wrong. The reason we love it is because it gives us sides and it gives us platforms. And we love us a good fight, don't we? Man, we love to fight. And we find any reason and any method to fight. We love to fight hand-to-hand -hand combat. We love to fight with our words. We love to fight in social media. Gosh, we just, we love it. I think we wake up looking for a fight. We just love it. Some of our kids do. I'm like, wow, you just woke up. Are we doing this right now? Right now? But the reason we like law is because law gives us a platform. Law creates sides, it creates poles, and we like that, and we love to fight. Now, for some of us, we like to actually fight in person. Most of us, we just like to fight in our own minds. Do you like that? Like you have arguments in your head that you've told the president, you've already told him. And he listened well and he changed everything because you had it in your mind. You, you, had, to fight, you had a fight this morning with your spouse that she has no idea about. It's been all in your mind. But we like it. We like what it gives us. It feels like it gives us some kind of authority. But the truth is, when we have laws... And laws then give us sides, then we have rights. And as Americans, we love to have rights, don't we? Some of us fight for our right to party, and that's what we, that's what we like. We like that right. <laughs> but we like rights. We want to know what we are entitled to. And so what happens is, through our perspective of law, we begin to decide what is right, what is a right for me based on that law. There's a, uh, like a political science theologian who wrote this. His name is Stanley Howarth, and he says this. He says, when we reduce the moral law solely to the idea of rights, we tend to produce people who can only yell at one another that their rights have been violated. Does that sound familiar to anyone? What God gives us here in Exodus 20 is what's called the moral law. But we've reduced moral law down to rights. And when that happens, we only have people who yell at each other that their rights have been violated. Are you paying attention at all in the world? This is what every conversation is about. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what you voted, no matter what you believe, this is what it's all about for us. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to bring us to the truth of the Bible about the law. Not what culture says, not what America says, what God, the creator of the universe says. 
And from there, I want to just take us through this study of Scripture about the moral law. These Ten Commandments don't exist in a vacuum. They're part of 613 different commands. That's called the law. First five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah, which can be translated law or teaching or instruction. And this law, this moment here, is perpetually repeated throughout Scripture. But I want to give us a few understandings first. First is this. The law was given to help us understand the wisdom of God. That's first. Understand the wisdom of God. These Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, are about us understanding the wisdom of God, who God is. It was given to us as a new way to live, as followers of Jesus. This has become our constitution. It's what we live our lives by. But ultimately, the law was given to reveal our sinfulness. That's the ultimate goal of the law. And if we perceive the law as a way to set up our rights, we're completely missing the point. Exodus happens At the end of the Torah, the first five books is the book of Deuteronomy, which means second telling. And Moses and the Israelites are on the edge of the Jordan River about to cross into the promised land. And they have this moment where Moses gives a Deuteronomy, a second telling of the law. You've done this with your kids. I know you have. You've pulled into someone's driveway about to have dinner at their house. And then you've shut the car off and you've turned around and you've told them, I need to remind you about our rules. Has that happened for you? I don't care what they do in their house. In our house, This is how, as gardeners, this is what we do. And so you tell them, and then they go in, and they're the best kids you've ever met. That doesn't happen for you. Maybe you should do it better. So then they, whatever. (laughs) They hear it, and then they don't hear it, and they go in. But Moses does this, and towards the end of Deuteronomy, he looks, looks at the Israelites gathered together, and he says to them, you've broken all of the laws, and what you need is a new heart. That's what I think you need. I think your heart is a heart of stone and needs to be transformed into a heart of flesh. I think that's the problem. And until, Moses tells him, until you have a heart of flesh, um, you will continue to break the law. Well, just like my kids and your kids, they don't listen and they go into the promised land and it's one broken law after another, continually. I mean, from the moment the 10 commandments are given, all the Israelites do is break the laws. It's all they do. From this moment in Exodus chapter 20, it's not, it's not but another day or so before they're worshiping idols. I mean, it's fresh on their mind. So they get there into the promised land and then from there it just perpetually spirals from the judges to the kings. And then God sends what's called prophets. So you've got the law and now you've got the prophets. And the prophets come and they speak to the people of God, the Israelites. And these aren't people that you invite to your parties. Like they're really buzzkills, but they come in and they tell the Israelites, you're not doing this right. So one of them in particular by the name of Ezekiel speaks on behalf of God in Ezekiel chapter 36. And God says that he will give them a new heart and a new covenant. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart of, that's moldable. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. There's a day coming, Ezekiel, God says through Ezekiel, where I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart that actually can obey the commandments. I'm going to give you that. Another prophet by the name of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The prophet Isaiah says there's coming a Messiah, a savior. And this Messiah will work in such a way that he will lead his people to love and obey the law again. The rest of the Old Testament is basically us learning the law did nothing for the Israelites. It might've been on tablets, it might've been in their government buildings. And what we learned through the Old Testament is that you cannot legislate the heart, you can't. That's what we learned. That's the goal of, of the law is to remind the Israelites that even though they're not like Pharaoh, they're still not like God. So the New Testament happens. The prophets go quiet for 400 years. They hear nothing. People of God hear nothing from prophets. God doesn't speak to them. And then God sends in Matthew chapter one, a baby through a genealogy. And this baby would be born and his name would be Jesus. And he would be the son of God born to human parents. And Jesus would live a life of the law. He grew up in a Jewish home, fulfilling each of the 613 commandments, the only one who could, and he did. Not once did he miss up, mess up, did he miss any of the law. He fulfilled all of them. And at the age of 30, he begins his Messiah ministry, his ministry to redeem the world. And he begins it with what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives this epic sermon in Matthew chapter five. But like any epic sermon, some people love it, some people hate it. And in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says, you don't need to think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. What did the law say? The law, we just read part of in Exodus chapter 20, and all the prophets said, you're gonna get a new spirit, a new heart. And Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with that, but I have come to fulfill them. What the law was meant to do and it could not do, it has done through me. What the prophets were speaking of, that you can't live the law, you can't fulfill the law in your heart of stone, you need a new heart, is actually being fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilling that law and giving a new heart of flesh. And so Jesus now in this sermon begins to unpack what the 10 commandments actually mean. Cause here's what had happened. And maybe you can relate to this. The 10 commandments became the test by which they lived their lives. And so they would look at the 10 commandments and maybe they would say, well, I mean, I got like eight out of 10. That's a B. I think that's good. In most houses, I would not be in trouble. Like that's fine. I got an 80 and so I'm going to be fine. I'll graduate. C's get degrees, D's get degrees, so I'll be fine. Like I got a 40, I'll be fine. So they would base it on that or they would create this, um, this structure by which certain sins were more uh, offensive than other ones. Has this happened for you? Have you ever felt this way? And so Jesus comes in and he says, all right, let me tell you what this was actually about because you've completely missed the point. So he continues in Matthew chapter five, verse 21. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And where did they hear that said? Well, they heard it said in the 10 commandments and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus, who has fulfilled the law and the prophets, which grants him authority, says this in verse 22, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What God says is you thought the bar was murder. I'm saying the bar is anger. I think if Jesus were here today, he would say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, go drive on I-75. 
But I say, try to cross 2081. Do that. Jesus is making the point, this isn't about your behavior. This hasn't been about your hands. This is about your heart. And while you may think you're better than Pharaoh or you're better than Egypt, you're better than your neighbor or better than your spouse or better than your mom or better than your dad, you need to be reminded. This isn't about what you've done with your hands. This is about what you've done with your heart. And he says in verse 22, whoever says you fool or curses somebody will be liable to the hellfire. He continues in Matthew chapter five and he says, you've heard it said of old, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, Anyone who has lusted after a woman in his heart has committed adultery. So let me just speak on that just for a second. It's often the men who are assumed to be the ones lusting in their hearts after a woman. And that's fine. I think that's how we're wired and that does happen in in sinful ways. That is true to happen. And what God is saying, you can't hold over somebody's head they've committed adultery even though you've lusted after your neighbor or you've lusted after that woman on the movie. But let me just say this in all love to you women. You cannot condemn your husband for lusting after a woman while you watch The Bachelor. I'm being dead serious. There's this weird thing in society where women can talk about how attractive male um, actors are, but if a guy were to say that, he would be a dirtbag. You cannot lust physically or emotionally after another man who is not your husband and then hold it over, to, over your husband's head that he has a problem with pornography. If you lust after someone who is married, you've committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus is saying again is, just because you haven't gone this far doesn't mean you aren't guilty of sin against a holy God. Jesus continues teaching and later in his ministry, we come in contact with men who are called the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees um, had made a really good living off of the law. They loved it. The law granted them um, authority and power. The law was the way that they were able to rise to some kind of popularity. Um, this, is, this is what they, they loved it. They loved the fame that came from the law. And they had men that worked with them called scribes. And the scribes were essentially lawyers and they were experts in the law. And you know what I mean when I say experts of the law? What I mean is, Experts in loopholes in the law. That's what I mean. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, when Jesus comes on this scene and says, listen, I I know you've heard it said this way, but it's actually bigger than that and harder than what you think it is. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 because I've established my superiority by not murdering, by not committing adultery. And then Jesus says, yeah, but have you? Like when you saw that woman at the river, did you? Well, then it's the same thing. And they're saying, that just can't be. And so they attempt now to paint Jesus in a light as a heretic, as someone who doesn't follow the law. So they try to catch him repeatedly in lies. So Matthew chapter 15, this will be on the screen. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So like, these aren't your hillbilly Pharisees and scribes. These are the big guys. And they come from Jerusalem. And they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. I mean, religiously, maybe, I'm just, I think we should wash our hands when we eat. I think you should. I think, that's, I think you should do that. But they're saying, based on this, and Jesus answered them, which I love how Jesus works. He always answers questions with questions. He says, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. That's a commandment. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, 
If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, or I'm not going to honor you by taking care of you, I gave it to God. He need not honor his father. And Jesus says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, you actors. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These people, the Pharisees and scribes, love the law because the law gave them the what to do and what not to do. It gave them the black and white. And what God has recognized about these people is they only do that. They only honor with their hands or with their lips. They only on the outside look like they're doing right while their hearts are far from them. Verse nine, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These men, these Pharisees and scribes, had taken the commandments of God and have manipulated them in such a way that they became commandments of men to get what they wanted from humanity. And then, I love this, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and scribes, and so they're right in front of him. And then look at this in verse 10. And now he calls all the people to him. So gather around. I want everyone to hear this, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And his disciples came to him, the sweet disciples, and said, do you know you hurt their feelings? Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. What he's saying is, my father didn't put them in charge. So they're done. Whatever they're trying to plant seeds of commandments that God didn't command is out. Will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Do I need to go any further? Are we okay? (laughs) But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You see, the Pharisees and scribes have started to see the law as a way to get their rights. And, God's, and Jesus speaks to them and says, this isn't about that. This is about your heart. It happens again in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer, a scribe, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Before this, Jesus had been tested by a scribe, saying, Of all the 613 commands, which one is the greatest? And Jesus says, oh, I think love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus said is, oh, I think it's tablet number one, love God, and then tablet number two, love people. I think that's what, that's what it means. I think it's all summed up in that. And so this lawyer comes to him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question with a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? What is your interpretation? And he answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Just do this, and you will live. And then here's the question. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? You want to know why we like black and white, why we like the law? Because we like to find the gray. And if I can find the gray, I'm absolved from having to obey the black or the white. 
But if I know the parameters, I can find the gray within it. And so this scribe, this lawyer says, okay, well then who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't give a list because what the man's looking for is a name. I need to know if this person's on that list because I've got plans for him. I need to make sure he's not on the list of my neighbors. And Jesus doesn't answer that way. Jesus answers like this in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus answers with a story that appeals to the heart. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus says, hey, all the law stuff is boiled down to these commands. And if what Jesus is saying, it's actually not about your behavior, it's about your heart, then the question is, why do we have the law at all, isn't it? Like, couldn't God have just said that to Moses on the mountain? Couldn't God have just said, hey, if you're going to be my people, check your heart. But he didn't. He gives commands, 613 commands, law that's been put into place. Why? Why couldn't God have just begun with the heart? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because it's in my notes. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul gets this very question from the church, churches of Galatia. Verse 19, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, because of sins, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It's a different sermon. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? The problem with the churches in Galatia was if God promised all this to Abraham and then he gave them a law, does the law then get rid of the promise? Like, is the promise contingent on the law? And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. You're misinterpreting it. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What he's saying is the law was never about getting you life. It was never about your salvation, which is why God began the Ten Commandments with, I'm the Lord your God who set you free. You've already been granted salvation. It's not about that. But then verse 22, but the scripture, the law, the Torah, the teaching imprisoned everything under sin. So the promise by faith in Christ Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Think about if you were born in prison. Your mom was in prison and she gave birth to you and you were born in prison. And that's all you knew. All you knew was that somebody served you lunch. Somebody served you breakfast and dinner. There was a place to go work out. Your mom got to go out outside one hour a day. Um, there are certain people to avoid. You knew that out in the playground. Like if you were born in jail, this was all you knew. You would never know you were in jail until you saw the bars and the gates. Then you would recognize you're in jail. This is what Paul is saying that the law does for us. You don't know you're in jail until you're given parameters to recommend to help you realize you're actually imprisoned. You're in jail. What the law does, the law puts up bars so you can see, oh, okay. I thought I was free. But now I'm recognizing that's not freedom. I'm actually imprisoned and I need to be set free. I need to be rescued. For the Israelites, they figured, well, at least I'm not like Pharaoh, so I must be free. And the law tells them, no, 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 you're still imprisoned. And when that got manipulated in the New Testament, the Pharisees felt like, well, I'm free because I obey the law. Jesus says, no, 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 your heart's still imprisoned. So Paul continues, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This word guardian speaks of like a financial guardianship. The idea being that if you were given, say you were eight or nine years old and your dad passed away and left you $3 million. 
At eight years old, what would you have bought with $3 million? I would have bought Nintendo games and baseball cards. That's what I would have bought with $3 million. The understanding is you, we wouldn't have known what to do with that blessing or with that freedom. In the very same way, maybe you have a similar uh, rule in your house, in our house. I mean, our kids can't just go in the fridge and pantry and eat whatever they want out of there whenever they want to. We have rules there. And it's because I know that if, if you had all that freedom, if our kids had all that freedom in our house, all they would do is drink Dr. Pepper and eat Oreos all day long. That's what they would do. And as their guardian, I feel like that's not a good idea because that will be expelled and what comes out of a mouth defiles a man. I don't want that happening for them. So there's, there's that. Now, the hope is when they turn 18 or when they're kicked out of our house, whenever they turn 18 or go away to school or they get married and have their own kids and they have a household, my hope is that we have taught them, please don't gorge yourself on Oreos and Dr. Pepper. If they were to take that freedom of their newfound freedom and go back to the old way, that would be a disservice. And what Paul is saying is the law works in such a way that we couldn't, they couldn't handle the freedom. So the law is what kept them ready. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Because of Jesus, we've been given that freedom again. Paul says it again in Romans chapter five, the law came to increase the trespass. The law came to increase the bars to show you you're in prison. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And here's where it gets really good where you felt like the deepest, darkest, most vile of sinners, there was more grace for you than you ever imagined. So that, in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then the obvious question is, well, then if we're free, let's just do whatever we want. And Paul says in chapter six of verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If the more I sin, the more grace there is. I figure then, a plus B equals C. I'll just keep on sinning to get more grace. And Paul says, no, no, no. In verse two, by no means, or God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have been taught that Dr. Pepper and Oreos will make you sick go back to it once we're free? There is a point of the law. But the law was not meant to bring us freedom. Jesus brings us freedom. Finally, in Galatians chapter five. Paul tells the church in Galatia, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You want to know why we bite and devour one another? Because we see the law not as a means to love, but as a means to find our rights. So we fight for them. The law was not given to us as a means to decide what our rights are. It's meant to give us a way to love. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So now Paul is saying, you want to know how to live by the law? Follow the Spirit. Because if you do that, you won't fall under the law of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And now you're like, see, I told you. And what I'm saying is it's because you don't need the law. You don't need the law because you're under the spirit and the spirit would never lead you against the law. So you don't even need the law anymore. 
What we like to do is we like to have a checklist and we like to know, again, where is the gray? And what Paul is saying here in Galatians is you don't need to know where the gray is. You just need to follow Jesus. And if you follow the Spirit, you're not going to murder. If you follow the Spirit, you're not going to commit adultery. If you follow the Spirit, you're not going to steal. If you follow the Spirit, you're not going to have other gods. Follow the Spirit. And the works of the, of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against these things. There is such things. There is no law. So here's what Paul has done. The law says, avoid these things. The Spirit says, pursue these things. The call is not to live our lives defensively against these things. The call is to live our lives on the offense, pursuing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the mark of a Christian. That's how we don't take the name of the Lord our God in vain. You can obey all the Ten Commandments and still not have love. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that's a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is what it means. This is what the good of the law, the law points us to the spirit. And notice the word is fruit, not fruits. Because in the very same way, we can look at the 10 commandments and say, man, I got a 90, that's an A. I feel like I'm doing pretty good. We can look at the, at the fruit of the spirit and say, well, I mean, I got, I got seven out of nine. Maybe I'm just not good at the other two. Well, the singularity of that word fruit doesn't give you permission to just slice it, only eat seven of the nine slices what it means to be led by the Spirit, what it means to be free is to have the fruit of the Spirit, all of them. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When the law has revealed to us that we are farther from God's will for us than we thought we were, then we crucify the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So then the question this morning is, well, then how do we do it? How do we, how do we have the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I'll tell you this. You don't do it by commanding it. And you don't do it by willing yourself to do it. Fruit doesn't grow because you yell at it. Fruit doesn't grow because you manipulate it. Fruit grows because it's connected to the vine. John chapter 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches and we are to abide in him. So I know in our culture, particularly this past week, we can celebrate certain victories as followers of Jesus and what we believe about the Bible and what it says, but I want to challenge us in this way. Do so through the fruit of the Spirit. If the Ten Commandments are a way to make us feel better about ourselves compared to other people, you've missed the boat. The point of the Ten Commandments is to reveal to you and to me how awful we are. That God clearly lays out what it takes to be holy in His presence, and we can't do it. That no matter how hard we try, we can't do it. 
and he gave us away anyway through the power of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Following Jesus is not about our rights. It's about loving God and loving our neighbor. That's what it's about. The mark of a disciple, the mark of a maturing believer, the mark of someone who is growing in their faith with Jesus it's not that they abstain from certain sins, but that they are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. How's that going for you? Have you built your identity? Have you hung your hat on the fact that you haven't murdered and haven't committed adultery? Or have you hung your hat on the fact that you've been angry and you've lusted and Jesus has rescued you? And today, are you more loving and kind and gentle and gracious and have more self-control today than you did a year ago? Or are you just better at the Ten Commandments? The point of the law was not to grant us freedom. The point of the law was to imprison us that we might only find freedom through Jesus. And maybe this morning you're pursuing freedom through your own white-knuckled efforts. Well, the Bible has been clear from the beginning. I don't know what you've heard, but that'll never get you what you're looking for. The only thing that will grant you freedom is by trusting the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's it. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we ponder and wrestle through the scriptures today. I don't know where you find yourself today in this journey of life, but my guess is that you have faced conviction or at least guilt of sin. And you've had a moment where you had to decide if you would lean into it and allow the Lord to continue to root up those things that he might plant new seeds of the Spirit. Or you would double down on the fact that even though you struggled there, at least you're not like your neighbor. Well, the point of the law is to remind us that we're all on equal footing. And not one of us is good enough to get to Jesus. Not one of us is good enough to be made whole. But God sent his son for us. So maybe today you need to let go of the hope of salvation in your works and begin to trust in the grace of Jesus. Maybe what's happening for you today is that you recognize that you've built your identity on the fact that you're better than your neighbor or you're better than that political party or you're better than the person that voted that way or maybe what has to happen for you is the humility to sit under the law that reminds us we all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's creating a people, not who behave better than other people, but a people who have faith in the finished work of Jesus. God, I love you and I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the way that you teach and mold and shape us each and every day. And I'm thankful for the grace that you show us that we are not under the law because that law has been fulfilled in Jesus. So for those of us struggling today, would you remind us that that's been covered? It's been covered. And that we have freedom, but that freedom is not meant for us to run back into the flesh, but that freedom is meant to set us on a new path towards purity and holiness. Remind us of that today. God, remind us of the fruit of the Spirit in the things that we say, in the way that we treat our neighbor, in the way that we treat our waiter and waitress, in the way that we uh, share things on social media, God, that we would do it through the fruit of the Spirit. That that is the mark of, of a follower, of your son or your daughter. May we grow in those, and may the world be drawn to you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.